It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, that is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Professor Jim Davies. He's uh, at the Carleton University, and he's in cognitive science. Uh, Mr. Jim Davies is an American-Canadian cognitive scientist. He's a playwright, he's an artist, and he's an author. He received his bachelor's degree in philosophy from the State University of New York at Oswego, and his his uh, master's in psychology at his and his PhD computer science from Georgia Institute of Technology. He is a full professor of cognitive science at the Institute of Cognitive Science and the School of Computer Science at Carleton University. And uh, that's where he is the director of the Science Imagination Laboratory. His research focuses on visual uh, re- reasoning and uh, analog and imagination. And specifically, we wanted to speak with Professor Davies uh, about psychology of why we want to be scared by horror media and seek out what appears to be unpleasant experiences. Professor Davies, welcome to the show. Hi, happy to be here. You know, I, I, uh, before we get into the, the idea of talking about horror... Um, Oswego, New York State, sounds very close to uh, that it might be near or on uh, indigenous territory. Uh, yes, yes. And, and so that's around the um, Syracuse area, is that right? Or? Uh, yeah, Oswego is about an hour north of Syracuse uh, on Lake Ontario. Mm. Uh, it sounds like a lovely uh, uh, campus. It's got. Uh, it was ranked at one point by National Geographic as having the second most beautiful sunset on Earth. I can't remember which one was the first, but indeed it was really spectacular. You'd just be walking back to your res uh, and just like catch the most amazing mm. um, sunsets over Lake Ontario. Right, looking west there, of course. Uh, how how did that help with your sense of imagination? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it helps to uh, understand the complexity of. Uh, scenes, right? So mm. one of the things that we find uh, beautiful is the, is a sort of an appropriate amount of complexity. If things are too simple or, uh, or too complex, they're boring, and there's like kind of a sweet spot. Um, mm. So like a sunset, even with um, just the sun and the ocean, for example, if you were to watch the sunset over Key West or from a mm. boat, uh, it might be kind of pretty, but without uh, clouds and colors and everything, it's it kind of looks much the same as every other sunset, right? Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I do learn a little bit from looking at beautiful sunsets, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. I know I always find it uh, <laughs> wonderful to um, to sit there and look at. It always it always makes me think of things. Uh, it helps my imagination go places. Um, how did you first get interested in this, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I was an artist um, my whole life, uh, drawing and acting and uh, writing and things. And, uh, you know, as I learned how to do those things, there are all these rules that people had, you know, like you should do this and don't do that. And these are kind of uh, rules that were just sort of discovered by artists over the years. Um, and then as I started getting trained as a scientist, I thought, I thought to myself, 
you know, I bet I bet science could figure out like if these rules actually work or how much they work. Um, but of course, artists really aren't trained to run experiments. Mm. After I got my PhD and I had a little bit more time to uh, work on things that were of my own interest, I, I found that there were, um, in the last 30 years, an enormous amount of work on the psychology of art and the science of art. And um, and so I started reading it. And that was the result that resulted in my first book, Riveted, which is about why we're interested in things. And um, it turns out there's a lot of science that constrains what we find beautiful, what we find interesting, um, and why we want to get scared by uh, scary movies even. <laughs> uh, you said science constrains our imagination? Well, science discovers that there are constraints okay. on our ima- – well, there's certainly constraints on our imagination. I mean, every anybody who's, like, seen something that was mind-blowing has experienced that, right? right. Like, we've all seen things, like – you'll you'll experience something and you'll think i never would have thought of that mm-hmm. like i'm sure i never would have thought right in that direction yes uh and that's and that's like a really kind of revelatory feeling yeah but what that's showing is the limits of your imagination and and it also shows how your imagination does get expanded mm. by experiencing new things because mm. once you have seen it you're no longer surprised by it right. it kind of becomes a tool in your mental toolbox that right. you can use when you use your imagination that's an interesting sort of thought he just brought to me and that is that our limits on our imagination but are our limit are our imaginations actually limited or as you just said by being exposed to other things that then expands them permanently uh or are we are we or are some people actually limited in imagination well, I, I think that they're not contradictory, what you're saying. People's imaginations are, in in, uh, in some sense, limited to what the kinds of concepts and things that they've experienced in their life, and it's mm. hard to go beyond that, mm. right? Mm. So uh, people's imaginations expand over time, but what we're talking about is that the limits of their imagination are getting a little further away, mm. but it's never completely unlimited. I mean, the fact that there are so many mysterious things in this universe that we can't we can't figure out mm. shows that our imaginations, uh, you know, there are just some things we just haven't been able to imagine yet. Mm. I, I noticed that you did some, as an exchange student, you went to Beijing. And I'm just yeah. wondering, what was that experience like for you in terms of the kinds of work that you are involved with in terms of helping expand your imagination? Yeah, being in another culture, um, it, it really shows you that um, – it's very easy if you just live in the same place your whole life to to imagine that your culture that everyone else has the same culture as you. I mean, mm. when you when you say it like that, it sounds stupid, but you know, it's just like, um, for example, I'm you know originally American, and Canada's culture is very similar to Americans compared to Chinese, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in the United States, for example, if somebody says, "Oh, would you like to have, would you like to have this?" and you would just answer honestly, you'd say yes or no, and then if you say yes, they give it to you. In China, you're supposed to refuse something several times before you actually take it. So mm-hmm. if somebody offers you something, you might go to somebody's house and say, oh, that's a beautiful painting. And they might say, oh, would you like to have it? And you're, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a certain number of times you're supposed to say no. Mm-hmm. And if they keep offering it, at some point, you're supposed to actually take it, but not before, because then it would be considered <laughs> rude. And different cultures have different numbers of times you're supposed to ask. Wow. In terms of in the United States, one ask is enough. Right. But you know, without knowing specifically about that, you wouldn't, uh, you, you wouldn't know what to do in another mm. culture. Um, so, you know, I, it is kind of a, you know, it expands your imagination of what, how different people think. And, um, you know, like talking to people who just, everybody thought Chairman Mao was a great man and everything, mm. uh, it's a different perspective. Right. 
So the science of imagination uh, laboratory, when, when did you start this and what were you hoping to find with it? When I was in grad school, uh, my dissertation project was about visual analogy. And that's, that is when you're trying to solve a problem by thinking of a different problem you know better that um, looks the same. Mm. Okay, so uh, what are the visual similarities? And when I would talk about how people do this or whatever, people would often ask me, well, where do these visual representations come from? How do people come up with ideas about what things look like in their heads? And I said, nobody knows. And so when I became a professor, you're supposed to do something that's related to what you did in your dissertation, but not the same exact thing. So I thought, that's what I'll do. I'll tackle human imagination. So I made the lab and um, we've been trying to figure out uh, how people imagine scenes, usually visual scenes. Mm. And I understand you use artificial intelligence uh, during this process somehow. How does that right. tie in? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so most artificial intelligence is just trying to make something smart, no matter how they can do it, just the best way to do it. But my branch of artificial intelligence is trying to use uh, AI to understand human thought. So what we do is we we come up with ideas about how we think people might imagine things. Then we program that into a computer and then we make the computer imagine and then we compare it to how people imagine. And then we say, okay, well, you know, obviously the computer's doing something very different from the way people do it. So we'll have to change it. Uh, but the idea is that it's a um, programming thought on a computer is a great way to explore your ideas, even if you're trying to understand how human beings work. Well, um, okay. Uh, I just think... Sometimes we have a hard time understanding each other's thoughts. <laughs> Very simple. Yeah. Uh, to- so how yes, does totally how, true. How does AI uh, try to try to answer those questions? Well, I'll give you an example that I think everyone can relate to. Let's say I, I ask you to imagine a scene with a mouse in it, mm. and you can you picture that in your head, right? So what people are going to do is they're going to come up with, um, you know, there'll be a mouse in it. There might be a mouse hole or some cheese or a wall or whatever. Um, where did you? how did your mind come up with those other objects? How did your mind know what else to put in there? Mm. And no one really had ever looked at this before. So, so one thing we, you know, because nobody had ever done it before, we could start with the dumbest, most obvious ideas. <laughs> so right. we thought, well, let's, let's look at what is, what words are most closely associated with mouse or what concepts are most closely associated with mouse. So we, we had a huge database of photographs that were labeled with what's in them. And we looked for the like four most common things that, appear with mouse in all those photographs. So if we assume that imagination is typically constrained by the real world, like what you see in the real world, um, then, you know, a mouse is going to have things around it that you usually see around mice. Uh, And then we had the computer come up with a list of what those things would be. And this is where we ran into a problem because it turns out that mouse is ambiguous. So we, it would say, Oh, there's a, um, there's like a cat and a computer tower, right? So, what it was doing is it was confusing the senses of mouse, the computer mouse, with the biological mouse, which mm. is something humans never do. Mm. So we had to think like, oh, well, it's not as simple as just picking the top ideas that are most closely associated with the word. There's got to be some subtlety there. So that's just an example of how like mm. programming it on a computer can give you insight into you know, what works and what doesn't work when comparing it to human beings. Mm. The first thing that came to mind when you said that was that how much of our does our memory play in into that because i was thinking would our would our mind go to our imagine go to uh the last per, perhaps picture of a of a of a of something we saw with a mouse in it uh or maybe we have a pet mouse 
Um, so those our memories, our, our mind would go to that recognition or that the last uh, the last time we saw a mouse or something like that. Right. So some so sometimes your, your mind will generate a particular thing you have seen before. Mm. So if you want to imagine a living room, you might imagine your living room, right, or your mother's living room or something. But you also could create sort of a generic brand new living room in your head. Mm. And sometimes you do one and sometimes you do the other. But this loops back to what we were saying at the beginning of this conversation, where we talk about how experience can expand your imagination. Mm. Really, when you imagine something, you are reorganizing elements from your memory. Memory is the fuel of imagination. With no memory, there is no imagination. Mm. So, you know, you you are any kind, anything a person can imagine is a recombination of elements of their, from their memory. Mm. Okay. Interesting. That reminds me of a film I saw a long time ago, but that gets us into another area altogether because uh, I'm not sure <laughs> if you're familiar with the, the film about um, the enigma of Casper Hosper. Are you, do you know that film? Uh, no, I'm sorry, I don't. But a guy that was raised in a, in, a, in a room by himself his whole life until he was in his 20s. He was kept captive and he wasn't even allowed to walk. And uh, and then this guy released him because he was getting too old to look keep after him but he he wasn't even he couldn't even walk and so it's a really interesting story about the questions this guy get asked gets asked about when the time he spent in there as he could learn to talk and 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 you know it's something you might find interesting you might want to look it up um yeah sounds neat anyway um so how does this then all play into the the concept of of why we like to be scared. How does our, how does our, you know, why do we, why do we like to be scared by, by horror films? I think the first thing to understand is that when you are looking at media, when you are watching movies, when you're listening to a radio broadcast, uh, when you are even reading a book or hearing a story in in an audio form, um, a lot of your brain is reacting to the elements in that story as though they're, really happening. Mm. Now, of course, you know at some level that it's just fiction, for example. So let's say you watch a scary movie. We just watched Mulholland Drive a couple days ago for Halloween. Um, And, you know, there's this feeling of dread and everything. And the reason that you feel scared is because your your mind, uh, when it sees a face, the part of your brain that recognizes it's a face and figures out who it is and um, that it behaves exactly the same way, whether you're looking at a person who's right in front of you or an image of a person on a screen or a person in a mag, a person's picture in a magazine. And similarly, when you see something frightening happen on, um, uh, on a, in a, in a movie, a, uh, a lot of your brain is reacting, right? Particularly the emotional areas are reacting in a similar way as if you actually saw it. Um, and we, we see evidence of this because um, one of the best theories of dreaming is that it's rehearsal for dangerous things. Mm. And people will have nightmares mm. sometimes after a very scary movie. And my interpretation of that is that your brain is like, well, all right, I've, I've seen this horrible thing happen. I've seen it happen. So I need to prepare for what I'm going to do when mm. it happens to me. Mm. Um, and so your brain just keeps rehearsing it because it doesn't really know that it's false. Now, that does not answer the question of why we would seek out what is basically an unpleasant experience. Right. Fear is an unpleasant experience. It's, it's something we generally try to avoid. Yes. Um, but we do seek it out. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that there is a thrill associated with it. There is an adrenaline rush, which uh, in its own way is interesting and pleasurable. So this reason, I think, is very much like the reason that we ride roller coasters. Mm. Also a scary experience but we seek it out and it's thrilling, right? Um, but it's kind of a safe way to experience the thrilling emotions. 
right? Yes, yes. So when people are riding a roller coaster, they're scared, but they're kind of thrilled about it. But if if they were to perceive that the roller coaster were breaking down and their life were actually in danger, it would turn into horror. I yeah. mean, like it would turn yeah. into real terror and yes. not be and not be pleasant at all. Right. Um, and similarly, you know, the fact that part of your brain knows that you're only watching a movie uh, allows you to experience those kind of thrilling emotions um, with some caveats, right? Mm. Um, so if, I, I have I have another thing to say, but if yep. you wanted to talk about that, we could do so before <laughs> before we move on. No, well, before we move on, I actually want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as listen, uh, as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Jim Davies. He's a professor at Carleton University in cognitive science and he also is the director of the science of imagination laboratory we're talking about imagination but also about why we are drawn to things like horror films to be frightened what is it that we that we can't turn away from i remember as a kid uh watching horror films and hiding behind my hands <laughs> <laughs> but watching yeah. through the through my fingers <laughs> um but you know couldn't turn away um so yeah, that that thrill that you said. There's something that draws us into that. Yeah. So the thrill is part of it, um, and there's another aspect too that's also uh, I think very important, and, and that is that your mind uh, seeks out information. We are learning creatures, and we like novelty. And, and another way to think about novelty is something that you don't really know or understand. Something you totally understand is boring, hmm. and you know people will often get bored with things that they completely understand and they want some level of challenge. Um, but this is especially true for things that are apparently dangerous. So when we watch a horror movie, we are seeing dangerous situations and there is um, a very strong effect in our heads that makes us feel that such things are important. Mm. So we like to watch people in danger <laughs> uh, because our minds feel that it is very important. So I'll give you a couple examples. If you're walking down the street and you see two people get into a fist fight, there often will it will draw a crowd. People will watch the fight. You know why mm. would they do this? Like, I mean, hanging around a couple of violent people is a potentially mm. dangerous situation. Why sure. not just walk away? Yep. Well, we evolve primarily in small societies of about 150 people, and if you actually saw people fighting, it was very usually very important for your status in this in the in the mm -hmm. hierarchy. Are you more aligned with one or the other? Is one of them, um, you know, is there a power struggle that you're going to need to know about? Mm. So we evolved like the people who paid close attention to fights and any kind of conflict and the outcomes of them had a um, a reproductive advantage over the people who didn't. Mm. So we evolved this absolutely haywire love of watching conflict, even though it's not a particularly pleasant thing, it feels very important. So taking this to horror movies, when you're watching somebody getting chased or killed or, you know, f fighting off an animal or, or a monster or something like that, the reason you can't look away is the same reason you can't look away when you pass an accident on the road. So when I was like uh, living in Atlanta for grad school, every morning I'd listen to the traffic report and Atlanta's got enormous highways and and there would always be some accident somewhere and it would cause a traffic jam, but then sure. there'd be a traffic jam on the highway going the other way That's right. because of rubberneckers, yeah. right? Like there yeah. was no accident. And, 
uh, and people are so driven. Now, why are they watching yes. an accident? They yes. really want to see a gory body. Right. Well, it would disturb them if they did, but they can't look away because they feel that it's important. Mm. And what about for those of us that do uh, just drive on and not <laughs> aren't rubberneckers that aren't interested? What, what, what does that say about us? <laughs> the few that oh, that I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, there, there's variation in all human stuff, right? right so right. you know, there there's um um you know, there are people who are who hate horror movies, and there are people yeah. who adore them, and people right. can't get enough of them, and, and various levels of of tolerance for it. It doesn't say anything. I don't think hmm. interesting about a particular person if they do or don't rubberneck. <laughs> okay, so and when you were talking there, and you were talking about how this, this somehow ties into our imagination, and it goes back to, uh, I was wondering, does this somehow help with expanding our imagination? Then, you know, well, what, yes, the horror movies, yeah, they do. But I mean, if it's expanding in the direction you want, is a different question. Hmm. Um, I mean, certainly, if you're trying to think of horror scenarios, like you're a horror writer or something like that, mm. um, you know, the, generally, like um, people who really come up with new, interesting stuff ha- are really deeply mm. immersed in a field, right? It's not like let's put it this way: if you're like write a fantasy novel, and if you've never read any or whatever, you know, it might be somewhat original. But you know, a lot of people just do the same old cliched stuff, mm. mm-hmm. and 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 like knowing, you know, having a good sense of what's out there actually helps you be creative because you know what kind of tropes you can tweak to make something new and interesting. Yeah, that's interesting right there about the creation of these these art forms that frighten us or that, uh, you know, that are described because some are, are written extremely well uh, and they just send a chill down your spine if you're reading something and, and it captures that moment extremely well. What is that? Does that say anything about the people that are creating these art forms in terms of uh, the imagination? Is it, just, is it just like, again, the imagination is a muscle. The more we use it, the better it gets in terms of whatever we apply it to? I think people who are good at writing fiction in general have a pretty good intuitive sense of what is going to be compelling on the page. Um, and some of those people also might have more explicit ideas about, oh, I need a cliffhanger at the end of this chapter or something like yeah. that, right? Um, and so it's, I think it's like being able to relate to their audience and being able to put themselves in their audience's shoes combined with that's sort of the evaluation level, right? At, at the generation level, they need to have the right kind of imagination to think of a bunch of things. And then they need the evaluation and the understanding of human nature uh, and, and predicting the audience response to be able to cull those ideas down into um, a story that really works. Mm. How does technology and images, because on the screen, of course, we're seeing images, they could be gory. They could be suspenseful. Uh, the music, of course, plays a big role in that. Um, how does that, does that, does the music have anything to do with how, well, obviously has a lot to do with how we react to those things. Um, is there anything else you can tell us about that? Going back specifically to, uh, I guess, mm-hmm. just the images themselves and how they register with, with what we're seeing, I guess, yeah. Yeah, images are scary by themselves, um, and it is a commonly discovered trick that if you're watching something scary on TV, turning off the sound mm-hmm. uh, reduces the, 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 the fear enormously. Mm-hmm. Um, music is a very direct access to emotion. Um, 
because I mean, it, it's direct in the sense that music often doesn't really mean anything. Mm. Like it's not that uh, a chord has a representation of some object in the real world in the way that um, even a color does. Mm. Right. Like if you see the color green, like there are a whole bunch of green things that you're reminded of. Mm. Um, but like a chord is, is a little, uh, it's just much more abstract. However, there are well-known um, ways to manipulate emotions using music. So minor keys are more mm. melancholy and, uh, the the uh, Lydian mode, for example, is really like uh, f- uh, fanciful, and you know that's used for like the Simpsons and mm. Little Mermaid theme and Yoda's theme mm. in Star Wars. So, so like musicians um, have either an intuitive or an explicit understanding of how music can be used to manipulate your emotions, and so when you combine that with the um, with the with the visuals, it just it's just sort of an emotion amplifier that just you know cuts right through your. Uh, mm your uh, critical defenses and right. taps the emotions kind of more directly. The other thing is, of course, that, as you said, we when we know something completely, we find it boring or we want somewhat of a challenge. Uh, there are right. lots of horror films out there, of course, that have, have many, many sequels to them. And they've been mm-hmm. very successful in bringing people back to watch them again. Uh, how is that when we, we kind of know the outcome, we know what the characters are going to bring to us. Why, why are people drawn back to it again then? Oh, I don't think that they know. I mean, I mm. think that at a very, very abstract level, they might have some expectations, mm. but I, p- part of the success of a sequel is in um, maintaining what is bringing people back to the franchise to begin with, mm. but at the same time, bringing something new, so that it's not just a complete remake. I mean, one one of the criticisms of J.J. Um, Abrams' Force Awakens movie is that it's it's a little bit r- derivative of the uh, New Hope, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so you know, you might say, well, he maybe he swung just a little bit in the in the, too far in the direction of trying to m- give people what they actually want about Star Wars so much that. It, you know, some people found it a little bit boring. I mean, it's hard to criticize his choices because the movie made like more money than, than <laughs> <laughs> anything. But I think you see what I'm getting at, right? Mm. Like, and, and when you get to the details of the plot, like if it is too predictable, people will not like it. Mm. Um, right? You know, people are going to die, but you don't know how they're going to die. You don't right. know the order they're going to die. Right. You don't know who's going to make it and who's right. going to almost make it. And and uh, you get carried right along with it. Mm. Uh we're almost out of time, Professor Davies. Anything else on the psychology of horror or how horror films affect us or, or the genre itself in terms of why it's so success, successful at capturing and bringing us back for more? Uh, yeah, so um, I just want to leave people with the notion that there's really not much of a moral issue with horror movies. I mean, if you enjoy them, great. If you don't, that's fine too. But I think I would encourage everyone to pay attention to how they – how they affect your mind, right? It, it, just as I, you know, we said that the um, what you experience influences your imagination, and sometimes watching something like really, really horrific can scar you for and make mm. you, uh, sure. you know, lower your well-being for a long time. And mm. we've all seen movies in our childhood that like kept us scared for years, you right. know. And so, you know, it just uh, think about how things affect you and what what you take in, whether it's the news or horror movies or anything else. And be mindful of how it affects your psyche and be ready to jettison it if it's bad for you. 
You know, interesting. I remember hearing people talk about when you said that Jaws popped into mind because I remember, of course, Jaws affected a lot of kids. And I remember people, you know, being afraid to go into the bathtub because they thought this shark would come out of the, the you know, at the bottom of the drain and, and get them and stuff. So it's it's really fascinating how uh, our our imaginations and our sense of of horror to, uh, come together to 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 create these un- unreal situations, but realistic in our in our minds. Yes, absolutely. I agree. I think it's a fascinating topic. Mr. Jim Davies, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and talk about uh, your work. And it sounds fascinating. It would be wonderful to talk with you more about this, but also about uh, our, our, how we are fascinated by things like horror. You're very welcome. Uh, yeah, uh, listeners can check out Riveted, where I go into more detail about why we're interested in stuff. Mm-hmm. I'd love to come back. Okay, thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Bye. That's Mr. Jim Davies. He is a professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, and he is both an American and Canadian cognitive scientist, playwright, artist, and author. And he received his bachelor's degree in philosophy from the State University of New York at Oswego. And it's been a pleasure to have him on the show, and it's always a pleasure to have you on the show listening to us each and every day right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Corinne Hart. She is an associate professor in the Faculty of Community Services and the Daphne Cockwell School of Nursing at Ryerson University. And uh, Corinne is an expert in community mental health. What a topic to be, uh, you know, to be addressing these days. Corinne, welcome to the show, first of all. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Mental health, uh, certainly the, the uh, pandemic COVID-19 has shed great light on this for all of us. Um, and I'm sure that you can tell us quite a bit about that. So in general, what can you tell us about how how things have changed since the beginning of the pandemic? What what happened? Um, because we hear so much about it now, uh, you know, since the pandemic struck. And of course, school was interrupted, work was interrupted. So many things were changed uh, to affect the daily lives of everyone. What what did you see, and what have you been seeing just in general since the start of the pandemic? I think in part. At the beginning, we were all frightened. Mm. So a lot of the mental health stuff that we were experiencing was, first of all, we were concerned, we were worried. Um, you know, we were getting used to the idea that things were going to, that we were going to be more isolated. Mm. Um, we were concerned about what this all meant. But we didn't think it would last this long. Right. I think that part of the, the things that have changed is people are getting really tired. People are, there's a cumulative effect now of months and months and months of both worry, concern if we have older relatives, mm. um, for many, many people, isolation. And it's, it's the, is this ever, ever, ever going to end? And right. that's part of the sort of the, the larger impact that we're seeing is that they're just, at the beginning, we thought it would be over, but it's not, and it doesn't. We're not sure when it will happen. Right. 
And so as, as we got further into this and we started to see those changes, people started to make changes to go more online, of course. Schools got uh, closed for a while. They started to reopen. And there was all these questions about uh, how would school open, what was going to happen, and same with work. How were people going to get to work? What was going to happen? What did you start to see and what were, what were people in your line of work starting to, to uh, see and, and hear from, from clients? We're here. I mean, I'm a, I'm a university professor, so yep. I'm my clients are mostly students and their and yes. and secondarily, yep. you know, the people in their lives. Sure. But certainly, we're seeing increased depression. We're we're seeing increased anxiety. Um, we're having people talk about feeling alone and feeling disconnected more and more to other people. Um, we're having people wondering where those lines are for them, how much risk can I take, how much risk can't I take, am I going to just say, at this point I don't care anymore, I'm just taking it and then having to mm. deal with those kinds of consequences. Mm. Um, it's that it's a lot of uncertainty and continued uncertainty that really contributes to people's feelings of, of just this low level of constant anxiety and depression. Now, in general, I know uh, that, like you said, you're you're a professor, uh, and so I guess, but I'm sure you talk to people in the in the mental health line of work. Um, youth have been uh, really affected by this. I think um, we hear a lot about that anxiety you 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 t- you spoke about, um, and this is something, of course, that we have not seen for a hundred years uh, in terms of a pandemic uh, since the Spanish flu. So um, the lockdown, the fear of what it might do to us, that, that fear that, oh my God, are we going to die from this? Uh, I know I had that coming from my own, uh, uh, my own daughter, my 15-year-old daughter was expressing those kind of thoughts initially. Um, and, and still, we don't know, you know about when we, we might have a vaccine, uh, although that looks promising at this point in time. So uh, the the anxiety, what what can that do to people? How can that affect people? Well, it makes it first of all, when you're feeling that anxiety, there are physical consequences. So you know your heart rate goes up, um, all of those stress related um, consequences happen, and often it's really subtle, and you don't really realize that part of why you're feeling like this is just that that constant anxiety. Mm. You know, people are. And then people are, are trying to find strategies. So they're eating more, they're drinking more, mm. they're exercising less, they're mm. doing all the kinds of things that we do to comfort ourselves. They're smoking more, mm. um, they're, they may be using substances more mm. just because A, there's not that much else to do. So right. you kind of start thinking, well, it's early in the day, but I, you know, I'm sort of, I have, I'm lost. I don't know what else to do. I have nowhere to go. Mm. Maybe I should just eat some more. I should eat something. I should, maybe I should relax myself and smoke something. Mm. Maybe, you know, all of those kinds of things play into that. Mm -hmm. And for youth who are mostly, who are used to running around, seeing friends, being sociable, this is a time when, when all of those things are so critical to youth um, at that age level, People are just sitting at home trying to figure out where to go. And they're, what we're seeing, certainly in the university, is people are becoming less um, eager to do their schoolwork, less engaged. They're just saying, I just am tuning out all the time. I just sit around and look at my phone all day. I can't engage with the world because I don't, I don't know why I'm doing this. There's a lot of subtle anger. 
because mm. this isn't what I signed up for in my life at this point in my life. Right. Um, and all, and those kinds of things, it's hard to know how long it will take afterwards and what the, the long-term consequences of this, this really protracted period of, of isolation um, with related stress and anxiety are going to do. And of course, when you say that about the students, you say that about youth, that of course lays heavily on on the parents and and the adults and the caregivers that are looking after the children, trying to keep them busy, trying to keep them active, trying to ease their mind about concerns. Uh, That of course adds great stress and anxiety to, to the adults and the caregivers. Absolutely. So you've got parents trying to deal with their own fears, their own anxiety, and their stress in trying to get their days done. You've got parents um, trying to deal with their young children who are, who have needs, who are anxious, who are in new situations, or who are staying home more. And so then parents are trying to juggle, which creates another layer of anxiety and stress for mm-hmm. caregivers. And then you have people who are in the middle of that, who have kids who may be either young or in high school or university who are struggling and older parents who are isolated and locked down. And so you have people in that sandwich generation who are kind of caught at both ends of the continuum and can't really meet the needs of anybody effectively and then are feeling stressed themselves and don't have those, those enough of those supports or the time to use the available supports to deal with their own mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's the family issues. There's, there's the, the thing about uh, families that are stuck in a home around each other much more. Yeah. And the stress that that causes, because let's face it, a lot of us, we go off to work, the kids go off to school, we don't see each other. It's nice to see each other at the end of the day and come back together and talk. But when we're stuck around each other all day, uh, that's a little bit of a different situation that, that most people are not used to. That's one situation I wouldn't mind asking about. The second one is for all the single people out there that were stuck and isolated and had nowhere to go or, or nothing to do and, and how they were coping with this as well. I think exactly in that way, people are watching more, more TV, people are drinking more, people are eating more, people are, are feeling less and less engaged. And I think that, you know, there is that, you're right, there is that, that we're all stuck together and this is really stressful. But the isolation that people who are single um, have felt is really considerable at this point. And again, Unless people have the resources to and the interest to stay connected on Zoom or on the phone, um, people start to disengage. People feel less and less connected because if you can't see people, you you disconnect. And then what you do is when you feel that you may end up saying, "I can't deal with this anymore," and taking and taking risks that with your health that you might not by saying, "I'm just going to go see somebody. I'm just going to go." Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's another way of dealing with this. But there has been a lot, a lot of, of sort of low-level depression because people who are stuck in their homes alone have nowhere, don't have those, those um, the supports or the, the basic human interaction that we all need on a daily level, on a daily basis. And that goes for seniors. I think the other group in this, mm. the mental health, implications for seniors, isolated mm. seniors, right. really, really high. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes. Um, I was just thinking, uh, for instance, my own, my own mother just re- recently went into, uh, went into long-term care and she had to be isolated for uh, two weeks. And we were very stressed out about the fact that she would be in there by herself, couldn't leave her room, uh, and, and, uh, and what that would do to her and how that would affect her. So I'm sure other people had those same concerns with, uh, with aging parents and things like that as well. My elderly mother has been in her room locked down in Montreal since the 12th of September, and they're not allowed out of their rooms right now because there was an outbreak. And I am watching. I, I have seen with her and talked to other people a cognitive decline and sort of, a, yeah. you know, they disengage from the world. Right. As there's nowhere to go. And so for elderly people, this is especially challenging. And for people who don't have access to internet, I think the other piece that, that becomes very important here is that often when we talk about Zoom and phone and doing all these things, we, we presume that people have access to these kinds of, um, resources. But there are also a lot of people who don't have access to good, to mm-hmm. good, um, internet, mm-hmm. who may be living in conditions where they can't use those supports. Right because there are too many people. So for those people, there are also a different set of, set of mental health yeah, costs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just heard uh, in the news recently about uh, how the government's going to try and get uh, high-speed internet into remote communities uh, where people don't have that access. And that's a, that would be a very, very serious concern for, for those uh, communities and people right now that are dealing with exactly what you just raised. Uh, Corinne, one one of the things I, I want to talk about and um, and get to so um, is that and that is the 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 health and mental health of the people that we turn to for help in right. this situation because I'm sure that those mental health care workers that are supplying so much need at this point in time have been uh, inundated with with calls and and, requ- and re- needing assistance from to help people but i'm sure that they also need help and they're dealing with uh, they're probably feeling a great amount of stress at this time but before we get there you've brought up the the point of engagement uh through this uh, this whole situation a few times and I'm wondering about that engagement, especially in terms of of people that are are students, uh, because of how that interruption got in, affected them at school, and and you know the stress that people want to do well, they want to achieve, they want to make sure they get good marks, but because of that lack of engagement, because of the lack of inter- and the re- interruption to the regular day and how we can function in terms of our, our daily natural process that if we are at school or going to work on a regular basis uh, in, in what we had prior to COVID. Um, is, is it safe to say that right now everybody's kind of, kind of coasting? We're just kind of, you know, you know, we're just getting through this as best we can right now. Everyone is struggling with trying to, to do, uh, you know, the best they can. But that's falling short in, in many cases of, of what we want to achieve. I would absolutely 100% agree with that. And I think the message is often that, that we're giving people, and I'm not sure if this is a good message or a bad message in the end, is do the best you can. Mm. We're, you know, this, this is unprecedented. It's becoming less and less unprecedented as time goes on. Mm. But do the best you can. We don't know what else to give you. Like, 
there these are the only resources we have and try your hardest try to do what you can um just know that maybe one day this will end and just keep going but this is not enough for most people yeah. this is this is exactly what for many people increases their stress because right. they don't want to just coast right and 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 with that uh just don't beat yourself up over the fact that you can't do better because everyone is in the same boat. We're all, we're all in the same situation. So, uh, don't feel bad about that because I don't think that people are, are expecting much more, especially in terms of our in, instructors and our professors and our teachers because they're, they're dealing with this as well. So don't beat yourself up over the fact that, that you're not doing as, as well as you could. That's kind of the message we're giving. And I, in fact, spent probably an hour until 9.30 last night on the phone with a student saying exactly that, mm. actually on a Zoom call, mm. because we are seeing so many students just saying, I'm not doing well, I'm not feeling like I can do well. Sorry. Um, I thought I turned this off. <laughs> um, I, you know, so many students are just saying, this is not the way I wanted to do school. This is not the and I don't feel like I'm, I'm learning enough, and I can't learn enough. And we're, we're basically having to say, this is what you can do right now. Corinne, as I said, the other side of this in terms of everyone that we have been talking about, the general population, the the healthcare workers themselves, I can't imagine what healthcare workers are going through right now and uh, and, and how they are dealing with and, and thank thank thankfully we have them that we can turn to, but they must uh, be be and you must be dealing with the stress of all this and I'm wondering about our mental health workers themselves and how they are doing. They're struggling. <laughs> Every they are struggling just like everybody else because the 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 level of intensity of you know of constant work is is very high. Um, depending where mental health workers are, in if you have a good team around you, then at least there are opportunities to debrief and to share experiences and to realize that you're not alone. But for people who are working more on their own. Um, as counselors who who may not have a strong team around them, this is very, very challenging. It doesn't end. So some of the things that mental health workers are starting to talk more and more about too is how do we take those breaks? How do we, you know, take the time for ourselves? Where do we get support? How do we get support? Because if the mental health care workers burn out, there will be far fewer resources mm. and good care for everybody else. Right. So this this is a tremendous challenge right now. Yeah, you mentioned the burnout, and and I can't imagine. Uh, the first thing that I was thinking about there was we know that there's been an increase in the requirement of, of mental health services and, and people in that area. Do we have any, any idea at this time, uh, Corinne, what kind of a percentage of increase we have seen during the COVID-19 pandemic? I honestly couldn't tell you. I don't know, but I'm sh- Given my own experiences just as a university professor and talking yes. to my colleagues yes. and my colleagues in counseling, it's high. <laughs> it's, it's way higher than it was before. And the needs are more intense. Right. Well, numbers I could not tell you. Right. Uh, when you say it's higher, and of course we know that, uh, can you give me a, a sense of the, the time requirement that uh, people are seeing in terms of their, their need? Uh, to help others. I can take it from, I'm going to just flip it because from my own perspective as, as a professor working yep. with a lot of students, what we're, to, what we're seeing, and we are not counselors, yes. is 
Uh, but but what I hear from all of my colleagues is we are now becoming counselors. So for us who are not in that role, mm. we are spending hours of our time counseling students who are really stressed, people who are feeling insecure, people who are depressed, people who have anxiety. And we're seeing that. One of my colleagues said yesterday, we are now having to become counselors and mothers and supporters, mm. not just professors. So if we're seeing that right. and we know that there are long waits to get access to care, um, then I can, I would extrapolate that to say that much of the day of people who are really in this in in counseling or in mental health um, roles are seeing probably at, at least twice as many and twice as much intensity as they thought before, and that's what I hear from my counselor friends at the university. Yeah, yeah. That, well, there, that's a telling sign right there. Are, are we seeing mental health counselors as frontline workers? We should. Yeah. Whether we are or whether we're not, we absolutely, absolutely should, because they're holding up a lot of the system. Mm. Perhaps not in the same way as you know, selling groceries or yes. or providing um, medications or surgery or something, mm-hmm. you know. But absolutely, without the mental health care workers, a lot of those people's ability to cope is going to diminish. And we heard on the radio, I don't know if you heard this, but you know, there was, there have been some concerns even just at the children's help, um, helpline that mm. counselors were burning out right. because the calls have increased so much and the, and the intensity of the calls is increased. Yeah, that's the thing, the intensity. And I was going to ask you about that. So I appreciate you bringing it up from again from your colleagues from what you're hearing and and even from the students you're speaking to what is that intensity bringing to the conversations what concerns are are you have <clears throat> pardon me are you having from those conversations i guess what i'm saying is are we seeing more more in terms of of people that are putting themselves perhaps in harm's way or 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 wanting to, to harm themselves i think there is that potential for people who are either totally socially isolated. I think some of it is um, putting themselves in harm way just because they don't know what else to do. They, mm. There is, you know, with suicidal ideation mm. with people using self-harm just because they're, they're at their wits end. Mm. But there's also the potential for people to use substances in a way that they, they might not have before because they're isolated. They don't have the supports around that. So you also have the potential for people to be trying to self-soothe themselves because they are feeling so anxious, depressed, or isolated, and then getting into trouble because there's nobody around there to watch out for them. So there, there are both those kinds of, of problems. But certainly, um, you always worry when people are isolated and falling deeper and deeper into social isolation and depression that there is that risk. Mm. So what can people do? Do you have any, any uh, recommendations for the weather is, of course, going to get colder. We're going to enter into the, the uh, in, uh, flu season. Uh, we are looking at a potential uh, uh, vaccine, perhaps early in 2021, but that's going to take time to roll out even if it does, and then it's going to be a matter of who gets it and, and how that is distributed and how quickly it can become available. But the weather is going to get colder. That means people are going to be staying in more. Uh, what, what are your, your thoughts or recommendations as we look to the, to the the season ahead? Yeah, there aren't, 
This is a really hard one, and I was I spent a lot of time trying to think about this. Some of it is taking breaks. Some of it is is not just. I think the more you look at a screen, and the more you know during the day, the the harder it becomes to pull yourself away, and the more exhausted and tired you get. Mm. So some of this is that basic health stuff. Take a break. Set a schedule. Um, for all, for those of us who are working at home all the time, don't work on your bed all day in your pajamas. Say, I'm going to get up. I'm going to have routine because routine at least gives you markers during the day mm. to say, now I can do X and Y. And the whole thing doesn't just blend into one long day of nothingness. Mm. So, so we need markers in our day. Right. Um, we need to connect with other people. So yes, there are upsides and downsides to Zoom meetings. Maybe phone. I have. I know people who have said, I'm going to stop looking at the screen, but I'm going to phone one or two people every day just to connect. Mm. So thinking about other people. Mm. So um, again, how can we put ourselves in a place where we're part of a collective? One of the things I said to um, my student last night, actually, was... She said, I'm feeling really isolated. And I said, yeah, but part of this is that we are all in isolation together. We are all in the same place. So recognizing that we're not, it's not just us alone in a room, but we are part of a broader collective. I don't know if that helps or it doesn't help, mm. but it it's kind of a different way of thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Taking walks, right. getting outside. Mm-hmm. Um, those are and and have and being gentle with oneself, mm. knowing that this it will end. Mm-hmm. Um, but but realistically, we have to all be gentle with ourselves and not expect that we're going to be where we were a year ago. Right. You know, they're not great solutions, and that's part of the the reality and the hard part of this pandemic is that the things we would normally do to increase our mental health are all really really challenging to do at this point. Right. Corinne, what haven't we mentioned about this so far that you may be on your radar, but but we don't see from your perspective that you feel is important to mention? I think it's recognizing that um, there is not going to be a really easy fix and that once we go back to some semblance of normal, there are going to be long-term consequences mm. to people's mental health. Right. And that we're going to be have to be aware that what we see a year or a year and a half from now in young, in kids perhaps, in youth, like in all sorts of populations, in the elderly, when we go back and look at some of the mental health problems that are going to happen in the future, we're going to have to look back and, and, and try to parse out and, and be sensitive to the fact that some of these may be kind of post-traumatic um, responses to this whole period of uncertainty and stress and change. And I think that that's going to be really important so that our, we suddenly don't make things worse for people by expecting once mm. we go back to, or once we go move into another stage of this, that's less isolating. Right. I don't think we're going fully back um, that we have to keep that perspective of, of how this has affected people on the long term rather than the short term. Mm. Right. Well said. Uh, Corinne, it's been really a pleasure to have you on the show and talk to uh, us about this very, very important issue that we are all facing with during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that is our 
our mental health and the well-being of each and every one of us. Uh, I think there were some great points that you made there, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show to tell us about these uh, important uh, things that we have been looking at since, uh, I guess, eight months uh, being in COVID-19, but also as we look forward to uh, getting into the, uh, the, the colder season, uh, the flu season, and, uh, and also being gentle, as you said, being gentle with ourselves and with each other and not expecting uh, too much out of ourselves as we all go through this because other people are going through the same thing and they are, if they're our professors, if they are our teachers, uh, even employers, I guess, hopefully, that they're not expecting everybody to be functioning at 100% uh, at this point in time because of the given situation that we find ourselves in. And to just uh, keep that in mind as we go through our days and not put too much stress on ourselves or each other, uh, just try to be kind to each other as we deal with this situation. And hopefully, as it was pointed out, I guess, by the Prime Minister recently, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. We can see it. It might be faint, but it is there. And that's what we have. We have to have hope and we have to and we have we have to balance that hope for the future and the realistic, you know, expectations that we have now. Mm. Right. Corinne, thank you once again for taking time to join us on the show. My pleasure. Take care. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Corinne Hart. She is an associate professor in the Faculty of Community Services and the Daphne Cockwell School of Nursing at Ryerson University. It's been a pleasure to have her on the show and talk about our current COVID-19 situation and uh, the mental health of ourselves, our kids, uh, our parents, uh, our neighbors, everyone in this situation right around the globe that we're all dealing with. And also as we look forward to dealing with it in the uh, the coming months, uh, the flu season, etc. And as hopefully we will see uh, something in the, the new year that might look like uh, there is a vaccine on the horizon and we may have something to look forward to. So remember everybody, just be kind to yourselves and everyone around you as we are trying to deal with this COVID-19 situation. And it may get, uh, you know, we may still, we're not out of it yet. We might still be into uh, further uh, uh, a lockdown situations, depending on how it goes in the cold months. But we still have each other. We can still communicate. And we fortunately do have those mental health workers that if we need to, we can reach out to and take advantage of. And thankfully, we do have them. And let's remember them as well. We should be thankful for their assistance during this time. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.